Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's so great to be with you today. Today we're kicking off a new series called God of the Underdogs. I'm really, really excited to get into this series with you. Um, last week, we wrapped up our series in James, and what an awesome, awesome uh, series it was, but also just to hear the stories of what God has done in your lives. If you haven't done it yet, go to our website, nlcchurch.com slash Our Stories, O-U-R-S-T-O-R-I-E-S, yes, I can spell on occasion, but uh, the link is also on our social media accounts. We published anonymously the miracles that our church has seen in their lives, and to be honest, I don't want to say I'm ye of little faith, but I did not anticipate the number of responses we saw in miracles that God has done in lives. It's incredible to see what God is doing among his people and how God answers our prayers. He hears us. And uh, we serve a great and awesome God. So make sure you check that out. Share that. Share that. Because it, it really does encourage and edify the church. It edifies people to know that God answers prayer. God answers prayer. And so make sure you check that out. Just amazing stories of what God has done. But today we're kicking off our new series, God of the Underdogs. Um, all of us have experienced at some point, uh, at some point in life, a point where we are the underdog. Um, there are some great movies about underdogs. I, the number one movie that comes to mind, to be honest, is Rocky, right? Rocky's a great underdog movie. I recently watched the first Rocky movie with my son Gavin. He was inspired. He was pumped by it. So he went on to watch all of the Rockies, I think, through five at least. I didn't realize how downhill they went after one. Um, <laughs> by Rocky, like, four or five, he's, like, fighting a guy in an alley, and that's the end. He, like, beats a guy up in an alley. They're like, the end. I was like, that's awful. But... Uh, but uh, there, there's Rocky, there's Braveheart, there's Rudy. Uh, we could, we could uh, Miracle, you think about the, uh, the hockey movie that Disney made about the U.S. beating those Russians in the, in the Olympics, in the Winter Olympics in the 80s. There's Hoosiers. Um, we could go on and on. Uh, I love watching the NCAA tur basketball tournament and watching those tiny little schools that have like 3,000 total students taking on the Giants, the Blue Bloods of basketball, seeing like, uh, you know, North, Northern Eastern Ohio agricultural state take on Duke, you know, and they beat them, and you're like, yes, it's just so cool to watch. I love watching the underdog win. Um, but there's, I think all of us, we don't really revel in being an underdog. I think we experience a lot of fear when we're the underdog. We, we, it's not a fun feeling, usually, to be the underdog. I remember lining up in recess. This was the highest level of anxiety any human being can be in when you line up against the fence in recess, and the two captains, the two most athletic kids in class, are picking teams. And your entire goal is not to be last or second to last, right? It's just, I don't care if I'm picked in the middle, whatever, just don't pick me last. And as the people are slowly pulled away from the fence, you're like, this is feeling bad. The feeling of being an underdog. There are times that being an underdog feels like insurmountable. The odds are just stacked against us. I don't have the finances. I don't have that, that uh, financial ability. I don't have the qualifications. I don't have the education or the charisma of other people. I don't have the physical characteristics. I don't have a chiseled chin and all these things. But you know what? The thing is, as we study here, we're going to realize that God doesn't look at these outward ex expressions or these outward appearances. He doesn't care about our charm or our strength. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, Samuel, the prophet, is looking for the next king of Israel, or the first king of Israel, 
And he's looking, and God tells him something. He says, you know what? Men look at the outward, experience, the outward expression. Men look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God uses the underdog. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of a man named Jacob. And it's going to be a unique morning in that normally I'll take a section of Scripture and we'll exegete it together and I'll break it down and we'll, we'll dig in and find the meat of, you know, here's some points that we can pull away, what's God telling us through the Scripture. This is going to be a little different. This is going to be a lot of storytelling today because we need to get the full grasp of Jacob's story to see what God is telling us today. And I, so it's going to be a little bit more unique um, in that way. So I hope you'll bear with me. It's going to be a, a little bit different. So our story starts with a guy named Abram who later became Abraham. And Abram was called out of his hometown. He lived in a place called Ur. God called him out and he said, listen, I'm going to make a nation out of you, Abraham. I, you trust me. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And, uh, and so Abraham, Abraham and his wife Sarah uh, trust God. They leave and they have no children. And they get older and older and older and they have no children. But yet still Abraham trusts God. And in their very late years, God gives a miracle and they have a son named Isaac. And Isaac grows up, and Abraham sends off his servant to go find a wife for Isaac, and he comes back with this woman named Rebekah, and Isaac is smitted. He is like, wow. I know it's smitten, but he was smitted, and uh, that's the past tense. He was like, this is, this is amazing. She's incredible. And he marries Rebekah, and they are ready to start their family. But in much the same way, Isaac and his wife Rebekah have their struggles with infertility. And so it's interesting because we see Abraham actually dies. And, and so uh, we read in the book of Hebrews that Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But did you know in Abraham's lifetime, he didn't see any of this promise come to pass? He trusted God for what would happen after he was gone. God's faithfulness sometimes happens further into the future than we can count. And so... And so Isaac and Rebekah, in turn, have their struggles with infertility, but eventually they do become pregnant, and not just pregnant with a baby, but with twins. And so this is where our story picks up. If you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis 25. If you can, we'd love for you to be on our app with us. The, or not our app. I say that all the time, like I could take credit for us making this app. The Bible app. Go download the Bible app. It's a great resource. If you take, oh, I don't know if we have the QR code, but you can uh, go to the uh, menu and go to events. And you can find us on there if you have location services. We have all our verses. You can take notes. There's places for announcements. So make sure you, you check us out there. So we're going to start with Genesis chapter 25. If you've got the, the tactile version of your Bible with the pages and everything, you can turn there. Starting in verse 24. It says this, When the time came for her to give birth, this is talking about Rebecca, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red. And his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. Now, I'm going to stop here and just tell you that I have never seen a newborn baby that was so hairy that it looked like it was wearing a fur coat. Um, how do you compliment someone's baby that looks like that? <laughs> how do you compliment someone when they show you their baby and it's like a tiny Chewbacca? You're like, Congratulations! Hey, he looks, he looks uh, warm. <laughs> looks, looks like he could survive a cold winter. I don't know, you know, like, how do you, how do you compliment? 
But, and, and not only that, they have this baby. It's Harry. Obviously, he's going to be self-conscious about that. And do you know what they name him? Harry. That's literally what it means. His name, Esau, means Harry. That's cruel. It's like being born with a big nose. and like, you're big nose now. And Harry isn't as common a name today. I mean, there's still some people named Harry, but I, I don't think it's usually attributed to people just because they are a hairy person. That would be just really mean. But, but especially back then, people were very literal in their naming and their descriptive names. And so uh, they would name people on what they observed and what they saw for their future. And so names would become really destiny. And so Esau's name became his literal label, Harry Guy. My name is Brent. Brent means from the hill. I don't know which hill particularly, but I am from there. <laughs> and as I get older, I realize more and more that perhaps should be adjusted a little bit to being over the hill. I don't know. <laughs> but growing up, my parents would say my name and I would respond to it. Brent, and I would respond because that's my label. I, I, I respond to that. I'd especially respond to it when my middle name got included in that. Brent John Wagner, and I'm there. I'm I, whatever... <laughs> Yes, what do you need? We all carry labels, whether it be our name, but also beyond that, we, we have labels that we give ourselves as well as labels that other people give us. Some of those labels are really desirable, and some are not. Some are affirming, and some aren't. You think about the affirming ones. You're, you're pretty. You're talented. You are a winner. And then some labels are destructive. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're weird. Some of us can remember the cruelty of a person. Maybe that just brought something to mind when I said that. And some of us can remember then when we were the cruel person. And so we all carry around this index of personal labels. And whatever label you wear, it shapes you. Sometimes we try to attain other labels. It could be suffixes that are added to our name, doctor or PhD or, or Mrs. and getting married or, or Mr. I guess that's always there. But uh, you know what I mean? We try to add on these extra labels because it, 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 it defines us. And so Esau is born and he has this label of hairy one. And then, though, he's followed by his brother because they're twins. And so picking up in verse 26, it says, After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So Jacob is born second, and he's holding on to the foot of his older brother. And being the literalists there they were, this family has already kind of proven that, and they named him Ankle Grabber. That's really what Jacob means, seriously, Ankle Grabber. So, so they're like, hairy guy and ankle grabber, it's great to have you part of the family. And once again, aren't you just so glad our parents don't just name us with whatever literal thought comes to mind when they see us for the first time? Aren't you glad you're not named like weird conehead alien baby, you know? That just would be tragic. But in Hebrew, there was more to it than that. You see, it was actually a play on words, and this is something we miss in English. Jacob was actually a play on words because Jacob meant ankle grabber, but it also means supplanter. And a supplanter is a usurper, someone who takes the place of another person through force or through scheming or through strategy. And at its core, it really means deceiver. So 
Jacob is born, and he's given the title of ankle grabber slash deceiver. So this label, whether it was given with intention or not, it really shapes Jacob's life. It, it, would, it would define the way that his relationships through the rest of his life would form and ultimately fall apart. His life became about the struggle against his own perceptions of inadequacy. His own perceptions of being the second best, second fiddle, the least desirable. And so the story continues on. It says in Genesis 25, in verse 27, it says, The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. So Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So when it says that uh, uh, Jacob liked to just stay at home among the tents, it literally means he just hung out around the tents. He liked to just kind of chill around there while Esau went out into the woods. I think if we were to translate these brothers' personality types into today's day and age, into our culture, we would see Esau at Cabela's. We would see Esau at Bass Pro Shops. He'd have the lifted truck with the, uh, the Bowtech sticker in the back, right? That's Esau. Jacob, I think, would be running like a blog on, on beard oils and satchels and, and like maybe like pomade reviews, right? It, it's just different dudes, very different. And so uh, the, the, the interactions between these two brothers takes place over the next several chapters, so we're going to kind of summarize a few key moments in their stories. At one point, Esau uh, returns from the wilderness from hunting, and he comes in and he is famished. He is so hungry, and he sees that... His brother Jacob has a can of Campbell's Chunky Soup right there on the gr- and it looks amazing. He is so hungry. He's been hunting all day. He must not have gotten anything or maybe he just wasn't ready. To, it wasn't cooked and prepared. And he was like on the edge of death. He felt like he was going to die. And he goes, brother, give me some of your soup. And he goes, mm, can't do it. This is really important, good soup. I can't just give it away like that. And he says, what, what's it going to cost me to get that soup? And Jacob says, well... Let's see. I don't, let, let's just say your birthright. I know you're hungry. Just, let, let's, let's just, you know, birthright. How's that? And he goes, deal. And he shakes on it. And he sells Jacob his birthright for a bowl of literally lentil soup, which is like the worst trade in the history of trade deals. That is awful. Who, who trades anything for lentil soup? I, I'm not a lentil soup guy. But he was that hungry. And he trades away his birthright for soup. And, and so what is a birthright? What's that even mean? So a birthright was commonplace in, in the ancient world. It was, in, se- in several examples I was able to find, especially, um, was that the oldest would receive often at least two times the inheritance of the next children. Two times as much. And so he gave away his double portion of the inheritance that was going to be his for a bowl of soup. And, and so this, was, this, this wasn't just like playing favorites by the parent, on, on the part of the parents. It was interesting to read about. You see, um, it was kind of similar to the line of succession, like when there's kings. You know, the king has a prince and the oldest prince. My wife is really into uh, the, the, the royal family in England and who's next, you know, after Queen Elizabeth and all that. There's a succession in a, in a clan back then. And the oldest son would always be the next in line. 
And so in order to be next in line in that succession, it would require a lot of resources. You would need, you would need the, the flocks and the herds and all the resources that came from the patriarch that died. And so as the oldest, receiving that double portion was important because you're keeping the family going. And so that's why this, this was so important. And, and Esau is, is hoodwinked, essentially. He's, he's, he's tricked by his brother into giving him this double portion, and Jacob isn't even going to be the leader of the family clan. He's going to be just kind of the guy that's cruising along, but he's going to own most of the stuff. And, and so uh, he has twice the inheritance, but yet not even the leader of this clan. And, and it doesn't end there. Then later on in chapter 27, Jacob and Esau have another interaction, another situation. You see, Isaac is on his deathbed. He's going to die. And he realizes, I need to transfer the blessing onto my oldest son. And so he's going blind, and he calls Esau to himself. And he says, Esau, I want you to go out and go hunting. Go kill some wild game. Make that food I love. You know, just go grill up some food. And when you give it to me, I'm going to bless you, transfer the blessing to you. Problem was, Jacob's mother heard this. And remember, we had read just a minute ago, who was her favorite? Jacob. She overheard this and said, Jacob, quick, go get a goat while your brother's hunting, kill it. We'll prepare it just like your dad likes it. You present it to him, and you get the blessing. And so Jacob does this. He covers his arms in hair, in the back of his neck in hair, puts on even uh, Esau's clothes so that he smells like him, and presents the food to his father, and his father blesses him instead of Esau. And this is an, an interesting situation. Why, you wonder, why can't Isaac, just after they realize the mistake, after they realize, oh, we got hoodwinked and tricked, why can't he just transfer the blessing? Why can't he just undo it? Well, the thing is, a blessing isn't just uh, like a, a prayer of goodwill over someone. It's not like, can't we all just get a blessing? Can't you just kind of give us all like a may God bless you kind of thing? It wasn't that situation. You see, the blessing was the transference then of the leadership of the clan. It was transferring the power and the authority of the patriarch to the next son. And so now, Jacob has not only stolen twice the inheritance, but now he's stolen leadership and blessing of leadership of the clan from his, bro from his brother. He's stolen these two things. And Esau comes back and he's bitterly angry. And Jacob realizes, I am in serious, serious trouble. This, this proclamation of blessing has been placed over his brother and he demands from his father... Bless me instead. Take it back. But the thing is, blessings can't be reversed. In the book of Numbers, chapter 23, there's a story about a prophet of Baal who is paid off by this other nation to put a curse on Israel. And he goes up onto this mountain, and he's like, <clears throat> curse on Israel. Here we go. Blessings on you, Israel. And they're like, what are you doing? We paid you to curse them. And he's like, oh, yeah, you did, didn't you? I can't undo that. Blessings can't be undone. Once a blessing is spoken, it can't be taken back. There's no takesies, backsies. And so he realizes, I've already spoken this blessing, and so there's no taking back. Jacob now has stolen the birthright, the lion's share of the inheritance from his brother, as well as the mantle of leadership. And he did it while deceiving his father on his deathbed. That's cold. And he realizes, my brother's going to kill me. And so with his mom's help, he takes off. He runs for his life. He flees. He flees from his home, home which is ironic to me. This is ironic because he just stole... Two times the inheritance, and he stole the leadership of the clan, but he left with neither of those. He left with just the clothes on his back. He wasn't leading anybody. He didn't have a whole bunch of stuff. He left just for survival, and he ran far. 
The Bible says he ran from a place called Beersheba, which is south of modern-day Jerusalem. He ran all the way north to a place called Haran, which is in modern-day Turkey. That's a distance of almost 500 miles. Sometimes when I read the story, I think he took off a few towns, got away from it for a while. He ran far. That's like from here, I got on Google Maps, to Missoula, Montana. And that's not with a car. That's on your old feetsies. He ran a long ways to get away. He ran. And in chapter 28, on his way there, he has a dream. And he has this dream, and he sees a stairway to heaven, and he writes the worst guitar solo that's overplayed of all time. <laughs> no, he sees the stairway to heaven. And after this, this dream, he wakes up, and he makes a deal with God. He says, listen, God, that was pretty cool. I'll tell you what. If you bless me, if you give me all the food I'm ever going to need to eat, make sure I have plenty of of water to drink, you take, make sure you meet all my needs. If you do all this for me, I'll serve you, God. Not only that, I'll cut you in on it. As you bless me, I'll give you a cut of 10%. How's that sound? I'll even tithe to you 10%. And as Hosanna preached a couple of weeks ago, sometimes we try to make deals with God. Like he needs us in some way. Like we're, we're, like we're helping him out. Like, God, I got you on this. I'll, I'll pitch in a few bucks here for you. You just remember who your guy is. And so this is how Jacob approaches it. He's wheeling and dealing. And since the beginning of his life, we've seen this pattern in his life. He says, the cards have been stacked against me. I was born second. I didn't have a chance. And so you know what? I'm going to de determine my own destiny. I'm going to live my life on my terms, God. And you can meet me there if you, if you like. Tell, does that sound good? And so Jacob makes this deal with God, or he thinks he does, and he continues his journey, and he arrives in Haran. And when he arrives in Haran, his track record follows him. How many of you guys know that you can run from your problems, but if you don't address the source, the dysfunctions are just going to reappear somewhere new? If you don't address the source, that's just going to spring up in a new place. I uh, went garage selling this weekend, and I bought myself some new-to-me golf clubs. And the guy was like talking to me about golf like I really knew what I was doing. And I was like, I'm going to be honest with you. This is just a fancier way to lose the same golf balls I'm already losing. <laughs> you see, I'm just getting a, a new set of stuff that's not addressing. I've got a bad swing and I just don't have enough practice and I don't play enough. And, you know, all these other things. It's really not addressing the source. It's a fun new way to lose golf balls. <laughs> Jacob has taken his dysfunction. He's taken his problems. He's not addressing the source and he's just moved it to a new spot. And so he, he, he heads to Haran, and there he meets his uncle. And uh, he starts to work for his uncle because he had met a young lady that really caught his eye. And Jacob is running from who he is as he starts to work for his uncle Laban. And he himself, it's interesting, gets deceived. It must be in the family. Because he says, tell you what. I will work for you for seven years if I can marry your daughter. And he says, you got a deal. And so he works for him for seven years. They have the wedding. I'm guessing that Jacob must have uh, had a few too many cervezas because the next morning he woke up and he was not married to the woman he thought he was going to be married to. <laughs> Laban pulled the old switcheroo and married the other daughter off first. And Laban said, tell you what, okay, you can still marry the girl that you love. Give me another seven years. And Jacob works another seven years and marries the girl that he wanted to marry 
But this con artist thing goes back and forth between Laban and himself because uh, uh, actually Jacob starts to work his own con with selective breeding with the flocks and the herds so that he actually starts to grow his own wealth and starts to grow his own, uh, his own uh, uh, financial stability and, and he's ultimately stealing wealth from his uncle. And so he's got the select, selective breeding program going with the livestock and his flocks and herds are growing. And when this comes to light, Laban's not thrilled. And so Jacob once again gathers his family and he goes on the lamb again. He goes on the run and he jumps back into the, the, the desert heading south. And it's while Jacob is in this desert journey that the course of his life is forever changed. He's gone a long ways. He's run a long ways. And it's in this journey that Jacob's life is changed. You see, Jacob decides, you know what? I, things aren't working out here with Laban. I'm going to try going home. I need to head home. So he sends out some emissaries on his behalf to his brother Esau, basically saying, hey, remember me? Remember me? His ambassadors return to him and they say, hey, Esau does in fact remember you. And uh, he's on his way to see you. And Jacob says, good. And they said, oh, and also, he's on his way with 400 armed men. And Jacob realizes, oh, this, this isn't good. And Jacob prays a prayer, and literally he says in it, God, save me. He realizes, I can't go back. Laban's back there. I can't stay here. We're in the desert. We'll die. I have to go forward, but my brother Esau is there. He has burnt a lot of bridges. His brother lies in front of him, from whom he had stolen everything, with an, and his brother is waiting there with an armed contingency. And so Jacob realizes this is a moment of real defining, <laughs> a real defining moment in my life. Real definition type opportunity here for his life. And so that evening, something very interesting happened. So jump in your Bibles ahead to Genesis chapter 32. And this is where we're going to read together. It says this. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. I'm going to pause there. That's just written as almost it feels like an aside, which would be a really weird thing to just say as an aside. Like if I went to Albertsons and came back later that night and Hosanna was like, how was your day? I was like, it was good. Wrestled with a guy for a while, then came home, you know, standard, got a gallon of milk. It's just kind of thrown in there. He just wrestles with this guy for an entire night and then it continues on here telling the story. It says, When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. It's interesting here to see this. Even when his hip was wrenched, he didn't let go. Sometimes I feel like that's the end of the story. Is the guy realizes I can't get out of this wrestling match, so he wrenches his hip, and Jacob's like, okay, okay. But no, he holds on even after his hip is essentially ripped out of its socket. And Jacob holds on. And Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please, tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? 
And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, It's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And we could have a lengthy theological discussion about what was really happening and who Jacob was actually wrestling with, if it was an angel of the Lord, or maybe it was the pre-incarnate Jesus, or if it was God himself, because here he says, I, I, I met God face to face. But what we do know is that Jacob was in an encounter with a supernatural being. And we, we can read this and say, wow, Jacob was really holding his own, though. The guy saw he couldn't overcome him. This, Jacob was really putting up a fight. Jacob, at this point in his life, was 97 years old. He's fighting, a, a senior citizen is fighting a, a supernatural being. I, this could barely be considered a challenge to an angel in physical terms. I love wrestling with my boys. It's one of our favorite things to do is we will clear the furniture out of the living room. If you can go to the next slide for me. So we will clear the, the furniture out. We took, this is from a couple years ago. I was in better shape then. Um, we will clear the, and we will have Thursday night smackdown in the, in the living room. Um, it, is, it is so much fun. I love to just, to just wrestle and, and, and tussle and fight. And, uh, and, and, and we call it, when it's this intense, it's called wrestling night. You got to replace that E with an A when it's wrestling, okay? And, uh, and we have wrestling night. And in these epic matches, I make them feel at times like they almost have me. Oh, oh no, oh, not my leg. No, no. And then when they start to get a little bit cocky, I'll wrestle a little bit stronger. <laughs> Suddenly, oh, dad's getting a little stronger. <laughs> I've got a couple years left where this actually will work. Soon they'll be like, no, dad, and you know. <laughs> but I'll have those times where there's this back and forth because I'm, I'm pushing them. I want to see what they got, and we're kind of just having fun tussling, but, but really it's me holding back to see what they've got in them, and there's this, this, this kind of grappling. And so when, in this text, when it's talking about Jacob's opponent that could not overcome him, it's not suggesting that Jacob was physically besting the man, but rather it, it, you can see the ease with which this physical pain was inflicted on him by just touching his hip. But rather, in this moment, there's spiritual war warfare going on. Over the course of this night, Jacob reaches a turning point in his life where he's wrestling down his relationship with God. It's not about literally fighting God to say, I'm going to hold on to you till you bless me. But he's wrestling out his relationship with God. And in this ma match, the, the God or this, this being asks him, what is your name? And this is an incredibly important point right here that God asks him this. What is your name? And he answers, my name is Jacob. In this moment, in this grappling match with God, he comes to a point where he owns the truth of who he is. Years before that we just talked about, when he was asked by his father on his deathbed, who are you, what does he say? I am Esau. I am Esau. I'm something else. I'm someone else. But tonight God asks him, who are you? And Jacob says, I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. I am manipulator. 
He owned the truth of his label. And at that point, and at that place, when he became real with God and said, this is who I am, God knew who he was. God didn't ask him that question because he was like, really, who have I been wrestling all night? God knew exactly who he was. He asked Jacob so Jacob could own who he was. He said, I'm Jacob. And in that moment, God said, no, you're no longer going to be Jacob. You're no longer heel grasper. You're no longer supplanter. You're no longer deceiver. But you will be called Israel, which means God prevails. This is an interesting thing because in verse 28, God says, you've struggled with God and with humans, and you have overcome. So, so how does he give him the name Israel that means God's pre God prevails when he just told Jacob that he overcame God and people? You see, Jacob's overcoming was not through, once again, intellectually besting someone else. It wasn't through negotiating God into a corner, but rather his overcoming was in his own submission to God. And in his submission to God, he overcame. And it wasn't until Jacob came to that point of being real with himself and real with God that the course of his life forever changed. In being real with himself and real with God. And God changed the course of his life from that day forward. The course of Jacob's life was forever changed from that day forward. And God can change your destiny.